You may open your Bibles with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 9. To the written words of the living God. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Many might be bored by the amount of Scripture that we've had in the service so far, and that's okay. We'll have the last laugh with the Lord Jesus Christ against them in the great day of judgment that's coming. I'm an ambassador of the high King of Heaven. I couldn't care less what anyone feels or thinks about the Word of God. I'm going to represent the Lord Jesus Christ. He is worthy of all honor, glory, praise, and dominion. He's worthy of all the attention that we can muster from our hearts and minds that are so bogged down with the foolish things of this life. I want to remind you that that great amount of Scripture that we've already had in this service from Job chapter 33, Psalm 127, from the three passages of Scripture read by our brethren, that Job himself would say this, Neither have I gone back from the commandment of his lips. I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Amen. That is the attitude of a godly person toward the words of God. Right. Do you know what that means? If Job esteemed the words of his mouth to be more than his necessary food, then we just had a feast. Amen. And that's the way you should look at it. Those words are precious. The events they describe are precious. The words are powerful. The words instruct us in the way of righteousness and wisdom and truth. They tell us about the glory and greatness of our God and all that He has done for our brethren in the past. All He's able to do for us in the present and future. They should stir up your heart and mind. They should steal it back away from the world. You should be thankful for every word that we heard. I enjoyed every one of them. Poor Haman. Poor Haman. Time and chance happened to them all. And it couldn't have happened to a better man than Haman. Oh, yes. That night, do you know how big the chronicles of the kingdom of Persia were? They would more than fill this room if you've ever seen the uh, papers that come out of our government on a daily basis. I used to have to be a subscriber to them many years ago at the bank. And, you know, it, it just grew... It grew and grew and grew the daily, the daily record of all that took place in Congress. And you can imagine what the chronicles were of an empire that had been in existence for a hundred or two hundred years. And out of all those pages, time and chance happened to them all, that Ahasuerus came upon what Mordecai had done for him in saving his life from an assassination attempt. And while, while he was a thinking upon these things and while he obtained record that nothing had been done for Mordecai, he said, who's that out there in the uh, court? And it happened to be Haman. Yes, it did. And of course, Haman couldn't think about it being anyone else that the king would want to honor except himself. Oh, that's a wonderful chapter in the Bible, and it's there for your um, holy amusement. It's better than a sitcom. Sitcoms are retards looking for retards to laugh at them. And if you laugh, guess what you are? Have holy laughter in the good things of God's Word. That's what Esther 6 is there for. That's why the details of all that is there for. He could have easily have said, going into chapter 7, that there was a banquet and Haman ended up being hung on Mordecai's gallows. But he wanted to tell us the details of it in chapter 6 because we have a great Father in heaven that likes to amuse us. 
Whether it's a baboon's backside at the zoo or it's Esther chapter 6 about Haman, the Lord is a glorious Lord. And His Word ought to be precious to you. Genesis chapter 24, precious. The prayer of Hannah, precious. Those things should be sweeter to your taste than honey in the honeycomb. And they should be more precious in value to you than much fine gold. Ecclesiastes chapter 9. May the Lord bless us as we consider the lessons that are in this chapter this day. Let me read verses 1 through 3 to you and comment very briefly since we've been over them before. For all this, I considered in my heart even to declare all this, that the righteous and the wise and their works are in the hand of God. No man knoweth either love or hatred by all that is before them. All things come alike to all. There is one event to the righteous and to the wicked, to the good and to the clean and to the unclean, to him that sacrificeth and to him that sacrificeth not. As is the good, so is the sinner. And he that sweareth, as he that feareth an oath. This is an evil among all things that are done under the sun, that there is one event unto all. Yea, also the heart of the sons of men is full of evil, and madness is in their heart while they live, and after that they go to the dead. Very briefly, the things we want to remember from this lesson, and this lesson is God's providence contradicts character and conduct. You cannot tell if God's approving of your character or conduct by the events of your life. You can tell if God approves of your character and conduct by what the Bible says and by the testimony of the Holy Spirit in your heart. But by the events of life, you cannot know. Because sometimes events happen to the righteous that appear like they belong to the wicked, and sometimes events happen to the wicked that appear like they belong to the righteous. That was from chapter 8 and verse 14 where we read that. And here it is described again that one event happens to them all. But we are to remember in the face of circumstances that our lives and our works are in the hand of God. Remember last Lord's Day I turned you to 1 Samuel chapter 25 where Abigail comforted David by telling him that he was bound up in the bundle of life with the Lord his God but that the Lord would sling out his enemies as out of the middle of a sling. What a comparison. I want to be bound up in the bundle of life with the Lord my God. And I hope that you do as well. But we remember, as we approach life and we see circumstances come and go and and it appears random, or it appears that there's no distinction made between the righteous and the wicked, we remember something. Our lives and our works are in the hand of God. God is taking care of us. God is protecting us, chastening us, using all those events for our profit and His glory. Right. Verse 2 says the same thing as the last part of verse 1. The last part of verse 1 when it says, No man knoweth either love or hatred by all that is before them. What is before you are the things that you can see. The circumstances of life. And there is no man alive, not Solomon, and certainly not any one of us, that can tell whom God loves or whom he hates 
by the circumstances of his life. We know who God loves and who he hates by the testimony of Scripture. And we know who God loves by the testimony of the Spirit within our hearts. Because Romans chapter 5 tells us that the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit which is given to us. So the love and hatred of the last part of verse 1 is God's love and hatred. And there's no man alive that can figure it out by looking at circumstances. And Solomon had learned that lesson. That was his observation. But we still remember, because we have the testimony of Scripture and we have the testimony of His Spirit, that God is holding our hands in His life and He does love us. And so we don't let the circumstances of life move us. We come to verse 3, and Solomon describes this predicament or this aspect of life as a great evil. That there's no distinction made in the events that happen to men and women, whether they're God's children or not. One event happens to them all. Then he goes on to describe the effect of that on men. Yea, also, also the heart of the sons of men is full of evil. And madness is in their heart while they live. And after that they go to the dead. Their hearts are bent on doing wickedness. And madness or folly is in their hearts. Because they reason this way. If there's no advantage to serving God, then I might as well go serve myself. If the righteous aren't blessed, and look at that man over there. He prays all the time and he fears God and he supposedly loves Christ. But looks what, look what's happened to his life. When a, when a wicked man sees that, it hardens him in his wickedness. And then he gets cut off in his folly. The Lord cuts him off and his life is over. That's the lesson of verses 1 through 3. God's, God's providence contradicts our character and our conduct. We can't tell from life's circumstances. We tell from Scripture and the Spirit. We know that our, ha- our lives are in the hands of God. The wicked look at it and presume that they can live any way they want to because there's no difference made. And yet, and that is how the wicked think, the wicked presume upon God's providence in that it doesn't show a distinction between the righteous and the wicked. And yet at the same time, you will hear this expression come out of their mouths. When they see something good happen to a person, they will say, he must be living right. That is their expression because they are so hypocritical and double-minded in all their thinking and in all their speaking. They'll say, he must be living right, and yet they know that that distinction is not made on a consistent basis. And they're wrong on both counts. Because someone is promoted in the job does not mean he's living right. Because someone's promoted on the job means that time and chance has happened to that man by the providence of God. Because the Bible tells us that promotion doesn't come from the north, the south, or the west. It cometh from the Lord. Amen. And that's what we need to believe Amen. and trust. We come to the second lesson in verses 4 through 6. In verses 4 through 6, the lesson is life itself is hope. We have just ended the first lesson where the wicked are cut off in their madness and their foolish thinking. That because there's no distinction made, I can live any way I want to. Then we come to verses 4 through 6. With death having been our last thought from verse 3. For to him that is joined to all the living, there is hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they shall die, but the dead know not anything 
neither have they any more a reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Also their love and their hatred and their envy is now perished. Neither have they any more a portion forever in anything that is done under the sun. These verses are telling us and teaching us that life is hope itself. That while you're alive, enjoy and grab a hold of each day and live it. Because death cuts off everything. The thought is going to be continued, but we're going to arrive at a new lesson. In verse 10, it tells us to work with all our might. Because in the grave there is no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom where we all go after death. So while we're alive, we should do the best that we can and enjoy life, is what Solomon is telling us. For to him that is joined to all the living, there is hope. While you're still alive, there is hope. There is hope that time and chance can deliver you from any predicament that you're in. There isn't a need to despair, because God can still help you while you're alive. We have the expression in our church that we will keep on praying and keep on pressing for a matter until the baby dies. That's what we say, because that's from the Bible. We've made up our own little proverb, until the baby dies. And that baby that we're talking about is the son of David that God said he was going to take away through Nathan the prophet. But though David heard that prognosis of his son's sickness and the future of that son, David fell on his face and begged God for seven days and seven nights by fasting and prayer for God to have mercy and preserve the child's life. But when the child died, David rose up, washed himself, changed his garments, went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. And the servants and sat down to eat. And the servants came and said, what are you doing? While he was alive, you were on the ground fasting and praying, and now that he's dead, you're up eating. And he said, while he was alive, I had hope that God might show me mercy. But after he's dead, I'll go to him, but he's not going to come to me. There is so much wisdom in that, and it's the wisdom right here. Right. Do you know that that child was Solomon's older brother? For to him that is joined to all the living, there is hope. A living dog is better than a dead lion. You can compare a lion and a dog any way you wish. There is really no comparison. It's like light against darkness. A lion is a regal, noble, beloved, powerful, glorious animal that God made. And a dog's the opposite. But a dead lion is absolutely worthless, except a carcass that needs to be buried lest it send forth a stink. But a living dog no matter how inferior it is to the lion, is better while it's alive because at least it can do something. And whether that's chasing a frisbee or just leaving something in your house, it doesn't matter. It's, It's more than a dead lion. A dead lion can't do anything at all, no matter how regal that species may be. And so that's a little proverb that Solomon throws in to illustrate the lesson. And the lesson is, for him that is joined to all the living, there is hope. While a man is still alive, there's hope. And so while you're alive, there's hope. There is hope natural that the Lord can turn your circumstances. That you can labor to turn your circumstances. 
While you're alive, there's hope to lay hold on eternal life and reassure your soul. While you're alive, you can humble your spirit and walk with God. But once you're dead, you cannot do any of those things. Verse 5, for the living know that they shall die. But the dead know not anything. Neither have they any more a reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. The, re- the words reward and portion and portion and reward are going to be used through this chapter of Ecclesiastes because the wisdom of God teaches us that we ought to use our lives while we are alive to use the portion and the rewards that God has given us to enjoy life to its fullest with the moderate use of pleasures that He's given us. The living know that they shall die. What does that do to us? What should it do to us? Psalm 90 and verse 12 tells us, Then teach us to number our days, that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. The living, knowing that they're going to die, should cause them to maximize the value of each day. Only the wicked go on from day to day to day and lose their lives. Because all a life is is a string of days. And we should maximize each day. The Bible tells us, teach us to number our days. Count them one by one. Make value of each day. We are so foolish in our hearts to ever be bitter or discontent or angry for foolish causes, which are 99.5% of all anger. To waste a day that way is so foolish. Then you die. But while you're alive and while you're connected to all the living, you ought to be applying yourself to get rid of all those things out of your life, to eat, to drink, to be merry, to love your wife, to work hard on your job, and to enjoy the reward of your labor. Because that's what the Bible's going to teach us here. It's just progressing from how terrible death is. Death cuts off the opportunity for any of these good things. And yet if you take a 50-year-old man and think about the 18,000 days that he's lived, how many of those have I wasted with discontentment How many of those have I wasted with frustration? How many of those have I wasted with worry? How many have I wasted with anger? How many have I wasted with bitterness? What a waste. And that's what the wise man is trying to teach us. There's hope. Life can be better. Make it better. Trust God for time and chance to make it better. Don't squander it. Because we're going to be cut off soon enough. The living know that they shall die, but the dead know not anything. Because it's all over for them. Neither have they any more a reward. You say, I'm just sick and tired of getting up and going to work. Let me tell you something. If you're even half a man, as soon as you lose the strength and ability to go to work, you're going to wish you could go to work. Because Solomon said so. Now, if you're not half a man, you can't relate to Solomon, and I'm sorry. You're half a woman. But if you're half a man... Solomon tells you how you ought to think. So if there's something manly about you, you're going to be able to think the way Solomon does. And Solomon says, look what happens when you die. When you go to the grave, there is no more work, there's no device, there's no no knowledge, there's no wisdom. All these good things that make life exciting because you're acquiring them and doing them, it's all over. So there's no more a reward for their labor. To work hard and to be promoted. To work hard and get a raise. To work hard and accomplish something at work. 
to work hard and accomplish something in your home, to work hard and acquire wisdom, to work hard and acquire knowledge. Those are rewards of living. And you can do that while you're alive, but as soon as you're dead, even the opportunity for that is over, let alone the ability. They're both gone. And so the exhortation is life itself is hope, and while you're alive, make use of your life. The memory of them is forgotten. Everything just disappears. We have cemeteries around us that you wander through them. And many of those graves there, there is no one that has any conscious memory, conscious memory of the people that are there. Only if you force them can they remember, oh, yes, yes, yes. I have a great, great aunt that's buried downtown in the cemetery because the memory of them is forgotten. Their life is over. So while you're alive, live it one day at a time. In the fear of the Lord, knowing that your life and your works are in the hands of God, but remembering that your days are numbered and they're counting and they're running away. It's like sand in in a little egg timer. It runs away. Most most of my sand's at the bottom. I liked it when the sand was at the top. I wish I could turn it upside down. But I can't. So you know what? I try to exhort all you young people in here. Do you know where most of your sand is? In the ordinary course of things, you know where most of your sand is? It's in the top. It's just starting to run down. You've got a little tiny pile at the bottom. What are you, 17 years old? You know, I'm three times that. So I, my pile at the bottom is three times as big, and my pile at the top is three times as small. All right. So how are we living? Right. I wish I could go back and wonder about those grains of sand that have fallen through How many of those days have I wasted by not living them to the glory of God and for the profit and pleasure of my soul and the profit and pleasure of all the souls around me? Verse 6, also their love. Oh, love. Love can conquer anything. Really? You think so? Do you know how much love you have one second after you die? None. Hatred. The hatred you have for your enemies, which consumes your life and soul. Do you know how much you have one second after you die? None. Do you know how much effect you have on your enemies one second after you die? None. Your envy, resenting others who have advantages over you and that consumes you and eats you alive. The Bible says anger is cruel and wrath is heavy, but who can stand before envy? Envy is a terrible thing. But you don't do a bit of good with it. All you do is destroy your own life. Your envy doesn't make someone else hurt. Your envy makes them happy that they've got something you don't. I'm not talking about the righteous. Envy is a terrible thing. But as soon as you die, it's over. It's now perished. Neither have they any more a portion forever in anything that is done under the sun. Do Do you pick up the words? We have reward in five. We have portion in six. There is no more any reward, there is no more any portion in anything done under the sun. And God has given us richly all things to enjoy under the sun. Was anyone in here in a boat yesterday? Yes, I knew there was at least one. That's something that can be enjoyed under the sun. But once you're dead, you can't enjoy it. So use it. Life itself is hope. While you're alive, there's hope for reward, and there's hope for a portion in life of things that are done under the sun. It started with death. The wicked are full of evil. They're full of madness. They think they're going to live forever. They make no effort to know God or to serve Him. 
They make no effort for righteousness or wisdom. And then they die. And from that, those last words of verse 3, Solomon the wise man tells us that while you're alive, there's hope. You can improve your natural situation. You can improve your spiritual situation. You can improve your eternal situation by laying hold of eternal life. As we have learned in other contexts. But as soon as you die, all the advantage, all the potential, all the opportunity is gone. All the emotions are gone. Love, hatred, and envy are all gone. There is no more reward. There is no more portion. So don't wait till the end. Don't save everything for the end. You might be cut off and never get to use it. Don't wait till your children grow up. Enjoy them now. Don't wait till you get another promotion. Enjoy the job you have right now. Do the best at the job you have right now. Don't wait. While you're alive, there's hope. And use it. Here, we progress into the next lesson, verses 7 through 10. Verses 7 through 10 tell us the lesson to live life with joy and zeal. This is the God of heaven telling us how to live. Verse 7, go thy way, go thy way. Eat thy bread with joy and drink thy wine with a merry heart. For God now accepteth thy works. Let thy garments be always white and let thy head lack no ointment. Live joyfully with the wife whom thou lovest all the days of the life of thy vanity which he hath given thee under the sun all the days of thy vanity. For that is thy portion in this life and in thy labor which thou takest under the sun. Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might. For there is no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave whither thou goest. Amen. Amen. This is the religion of God. This is not the religion of Epicureanism, because Epicures do not fear God. Epicures do not know that they and their works are in the hand of God. They do not know these things. They do not know that God is in charge of time and chance. This is the word of Solomon to us, that while we're alive under the sun, this is how we should live. We should not live with worry, because we can't figure out the apparent randomness of circumstances. We do not live frustrated lives because we cannot see any distinction between the circumstances of the righteous and the wicked. We do not resent God for any of those things. We do not do all the things the wicked do. Excusing their sin, living hopelessly, living presumptuously, and then being cut off and having no hope, We live knowing that our days are numbered, we count each one, we make each one work, and we enjoy each one. That is a fair religion. That is a religion that is better than fair. It is merciful. God has never called His saints to sit around and read the Bible all day long. That is not Christianity. That is Catholicism. Catholics go and sit in monasteries and read the Bible or read religious books and fumble beads all day. It is nuns that go to convents and wear black robes. Think carefully. They go to convents and wear black robes and go to prayers eight times a day and take vows of poverty, can't own anything, 
take vows of celibacy, can't have a man in bed with me. They basically take vows of no pleasure because they live the driest lives possible. God never called men to that. That isn't what either testament teaches. The Levites had a pretty decent life. How many tribes were there in Israel that didn't have the title of Levi? There were 12. A tithe of the very best of everything those other 12 tribes could generate and produce in a year was to go to the tribe of Levi. So the tribe of Levi had how much compared to the annual tribal income for them to spend? 120% because they got 10% of 12 tribes. Because when Levi was pulled out to become the 13th tribe, the two sons of Joseph were stuck in to replace. The point is, they didn't live like monks. And they didn't live like nuns. They enjoyed the... The Bible tells us specifically, the best of all the wine in Israel was drunk by the Levites. The best of the flocks and herds, because what were you supposed to bring for your sacrifices? The very best, the very fattest of your flock. And the Levites ate that. This is God's religion. Let me say it for the tenth time. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 19 tells the rich in the New Testament to to enjoy richly the things that God hath given them, everything that God's given on earth under the sun. This is Christianity. It's a balance. We fear God. We keep His commandments. We love His Word and esteem His Word more important to us than our necessary food. But that doesn't mean we don't enjoy our necessary food every day, several times a day. Because as the passage tells us here, eat, drink, and be merry. That's how it's worded in verse 15 of chapter 8. Here it says, eat thy bread with joy. We should be joyful about the eating of bread. It's a wonderful thing to break bread. The Bible tells us in Acts chapter 2 that the early church, thousands of members, were full of the Holy Ghost, and they break their bread and ate their meat with gladness from house to house. Acts chapter 2, about verse 45 or 46. So it says, go thy way. Do not stop in the way of philosophers. Do not stop in the way of the curious. Do not stop in the way of the hopeless. Do not stop in the way of the frustrated. Do not stop in the way of those that blame God. Do not stop in the way of those that fill up their lives with sin because they can't see any apparent difference between sinners and good men. Go thy way. Go thy way and get something to eat. Go thy way and eat thy bread with joy. Don't worry about all these things that you cannot figure out and that you cannot alter. Why would we spend even one minute thinking about something that we're already told by God we can't figure out, and even if we were to figure it out, we cannot alter it? Is there some little prayer that's called a serenity prayer? that says something to the effect, God, grant me the grace to accept the things I cannot change, to change the things that I can, and the wisdom to know the difference, the courage to change the things that I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Is it something like, is it close? Could Could a seeing eye dog figure out that I was saying the serenity prayer? There's wisdom in it. God grant me the grace 
to accept the things I cannot change. God, give me the courage to change the things that I should. And God, give me the wisdom to know the difference between those two categories. That's what it means to go thy way. Because you know what? We don't have to worry about what God's going to do with time and chance because he's told us it's none of our business. That he'll take care of it and he'll take care of it right good. He takes care of it so well that the sparrows are taken care of. And we're supposed to look at each one of them and realize God's taking care of them. I'm of more value than many sparrows. He's got all the hairs of my head numbered. He's going to take care of me. So we, we enjoy each day. There is no place to worry. You don't know the future. And if you did know the future, you couldn't stop it. Why even think about it? Let's think about the present and enjoy God's mercies to us today. Go thy way. Eat thy bread with joy. Sit down and enjoy. Don't eat the bread of sorrows. Do you understand the difference? Psalm 127 had the bread of sorrows. I'm worried that I'm not going to get it done in time. I'm worried about this child. I'm worried about my family. I'm worried about my job, my health. I'm worried, I'm worried, I'm worried. That's eating the bread of sorrows. It's vain for you to do all of that. It's vain to eat the bread of sorrows. Eat the bread of joy. Go thy way. Eat thy bread with joy. Drink thy wine with a merry heart. We usually drink wine to get a merry heart. But this verse tells us to drink wine with a merry heart. You ought to go into your drinking with a merry heart. Then you're just going to get merrier. We know. He says he tries. You know, wine, we are told in the Bible that wine is able to take away the heaviness of a heart and cause a man to remember his poverty and misery no more. But the Bible says here that we should go into it already merry. Because where does true merriness come from? And it doesn't come from wine. It comes from a merry heart. A merry heart gives a cheerful countenance. A merry heart is something the Lord gives us. A merry heart is something we choose to have by submitting to the wisdom of Ecclesiastes that tells us not to worry about all the things God has kept from us and things that if He had given them to us, we couldn't alter them anyway. Because what God has made crooked, you aren't going to make straight. So just rejoice in the fact that He didn't make it straight, He made it crooked, and it just cost you a thousand bucks. Because a trade went awry that you were hoping to make a thousand on. You say, you made it crooked and I couldn't make it straight. I tried. Lord, thank you. But please show me a straight one next time. Whatever the case is. And you, you rejoice in life. You can't change it. We're to, be wise, we're to be prudent and have discretion and give a reasonable effort and do that reasonable effort with our might and trust the Lord for the results. Promotion cometh from the Lord. For God now accepteth thy works. If you approach life this way, God accepts your works. If you approach life in a different way, God does not accept your works. If you approach life in the monastic style of the Catholics, God doesn't accept your works. He is not impressed. There are, there are millions of Catholics thumbing rosaries today. There are millions of Catholics wearing brown robes, black robes, and wandering around with their heads bowed down thinking that's humility. That's never been humility. Humility in the Bible is saying, God, you're right and I'll do it with my, held, with my head held up and my knees straight and my shoulders back because I'm going to do it with zeal. Right. They don't take vows of poverty. They take vows of pleasure. Lord, whatever you give me, I'm going to enjoy it. Right. They don't take vows of celibacy. They take vows of intimacy. I can't wait to get home and get in bed with my spouse. Because they're enjoying the good things God gave them rather than denying those things. Amen. God now accepteth thy works. God accepts these kinds of sacrifices. 
God accepts us leaving the secret things to Him, taking the revealed things to ourselves, and enjoying life. He accepts it. He accepts it as an act of worship. In Deuteronomy chapter 14, remember that they were to take 10% of their gross and spend it with their families before the Lord and rejoice there with their household. That was part of worship. David providing that food for the the whole nation of Israel was part of their worship. Hezekiah having a feast for 14 days was part of their worship. God now accepteth thy works. Because you have humbled yourself before Him, and it's not going to be through your effort. You're going to trust Him. You aren't going to worry. You're going to have faith in God. You're going to enjoy life. You are not going to be so afraid of tomorrow and chicken little crying through the newspapers and the internet that the world's going to come to an end. You're going to enjoy today. I've heard the forecast that the world's going to end most of my life. I told you that last Lord's Day. I first heard it when I was seven years old. That the communists were going to bring our world to an end. We didn't need to worry about that. What if it was true? What if it was true? What if everyone in government was a communist and Joseph McCarthy was an angel from heaven? What if it was true? What was I going to do about it? I was seven. You know I tried. I'm going to sleep with knives. And when the Cubans crawl through my window, I'm going to attack them with my knife. Because remember, I was born in 57. So what did I live through? The Cuban Missile Crisis. What am I going to do? Row my canoe down to Cuba and stop their missiles? Do you know what we're supposed to do? Go thy way, eat thy bread with joy, and drink thy wine with a merry heart. For God now accepteth thy works. Because he's going to take care of all those things out of our control. I hate even learning about it. You know, some people think that knowing about it has value. How does it have value? It twists you all up. It gets you worried about things that you otherwise wouldn't know about. You should be at a wine tasting class where you learn that there's better grades of wine than you've had before. Life is too short to drink cheap wine. Somebody told that. Somebody said that in the church. Yeah. None of you know who it is and neither do I. Life is too short. We, we ought to be enjoying the good things God's giving us instead of worrying about Fidel Castro. And because of Second Peter 2 and Jude 1, I won't say anything about Fidel. He's an infidel. Fidel is an infidel. Let thy garments be always white. How does a Catholic read that verse? Let thy garments be always white while they wander around in black and brown robes. Let thy garments be always white. This is a synecdoche for doing things that are cheerful and pleasant, relaxing and upbeat in life. Things that are cheerful and and pleasurable to you, do them. Wear the light garments. Wear Wear the white. Wear the garments that are made for celebrating, not the ones for going out in the field and getting dirty. You don't want to wear professional clothes and you don't want to wear morning clothes. You want to wear lighthearted clothes. And the clothes are just a synecdoche or a part of your whole approach to life. Right. Let your garments be always white. Let thy head lack no ointment. The Lord Jesus Christ, when he broke bread and Mary came in with with an alabaster box of precious ointment and poured it all over his head. He was eating bread. He was giving thanks to God for it. He had oil dripping all over him. In the dry climate of the Middle East, that was a blessing and a privilege. The aroma filled the house. 
The Bible speaks of it. Psalm 45 tells me in advance that the Lord Jesus Christ would be covered with ointment. There it's a metaphor for the Holy Spirit of God, but it's a blessing. And so it says, take a shower and put some expensive cologne on. I mean, life is too short to spray yourself with deer scent. Enjoy life. And I'm not, I am not preaching a wasteful lifestyle. I'm just preaching what Solomon says here. I have to make sense of these words to you. What is the sense of these words? Right. And they're, they're pleasant. They're precious. They're relaxing. They're encouraging to a child of God. We walk through life and we enjoy all the good things. We give God the glory. We trust Him for tomorrow. We submit all of our business plans and personal plans to His will. We love His Word. We delight in reading it. We enjoy a good bottle of wine. We love a great steak. All of it together makes a Christian life. And it's what the Bible teaches. And we do not want to go into either ditch and there's two of them. One of the ditches is the ditch of Phariseeism of the Catholics where they wear black robes and make vows of celibacy and poverty and don't enjoy life because they've missed the boat. The Seventh-day Adventists and others are in that ditch because they violate Colossians chapter 2 where it says that they deny the flesh. The flesh is not to be denied in the Christian religion. If you're hungry and you want to eat something good, eat it. I am not talking about the lust of the flesh because it doesn't say the lust of the flesh in Colossians 2. It says the flesh. And to live such a disciplined, temperate, denying life that you don't give yourself pleasure is not Christianity. God has sent rain from heaven and fruitful seasons filling our hearts with food and gladness. This is the balance of Solomon's wisdom. This is the balance of God's wisdom. The other ditch is to just live for pleasure and have no faith or trust in God, have no regard for His Word, not tremble before it, not value the, the, the fellowshipping of the saints together in the assemblies, and so you, you're in another ditch, a ditch of lasciviousness without regard for God. And there are many Christians in that ditch today. Most contemporary Christians are over there. All they're looking for is entertainment rather than the fear of the Lord and the love of Christ and trembling before His Word and studying Scripture and appreciating doctrine. They don't have it. We want to go down the center of the road. We want to enjoy Bible doctrine. We want to love the words of Scripture. We want to consider them more than our necessary food, but we also want to appreciate necessary food and good food beyond the necessary. Because the Lord gives us all that. You don't have to drink wine. You can drink water and survive. But that's called the bread of affliction in the Bible. And we're not supposed to eat the bread of affliction. Verse 9 goes on, and, and I'll just introduce it to you. Live joyfully with the wife whom thou lovest all the days of the life of thy vanity. Because life is so short... As it's described in verses 1 through 6, while you're alive and there's hope, go thy way and don't worry about all these things that consume men's lives. It was described in in chapter 8, verse 16, that there are some men that cannot rest during the day and they cannot rest at night because they are worried about all these things. Instead of worrying about them, go thy way, eat thy bread with joy, drink thy wine with a merry heart. Get married and enjoy thy spouse or thy wife and get a job and do it with your might. Those are great blessings of life right right there. This is the Christian life. This is fearing God and keeping his commandments. Because his commandments keep us out of the ditch of Catholicism, monasticism. That means living in a monastery 
excessive self-denial to the denying of the flesh, Colossians chapter 2, and it keeps us out of the ditch of the lascivious, worldly, carnal approach to Christianity. We get to walk down the middle and enjoy God and enjoy the life that He's given us here under the sun. And these are some of the blessings of it. Good food, good wine, a good spouse, a job that you do with all your might. We'll take it up again when we come back. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word.